Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome. I just spoke with Michael Gibbs-Hill about his new book, Linchu Inc., that's for Incorporated, Translation and the Making of Modern Chinese Culture, and that came out with Oxford University Press in 2013, although some of us may have had a copy as early as 2012. Now, this is a book that follows the life and the work and the career of an individual, Lin Chu, who's a relatively well-known figure in the history of literature and translation. But what Hill's book does is really transforms the way we think about Lin Chu as an individual and instead replaces our image of translation and scholarship is done by a single author, a single individual, with a picture of Lin Chu as a member of a scholarly network of collaborators. This is somebody who was famous for translation, who produced, I think, over 180 translations of Western literary works into classical Chinese while knowing zero foreign languages. He worked with a lot of assistants and collaborators who did, but still, it's a pretty impressive feat. And it's kind of interestingly strange. And what Hill's book does is really make the history of translation in China also interestingly strange. He changes the way we think about what it means to read a translation and to read with a translation and to think with a translation. It's exceptionally interesting. It's a book that really organically straddles both the field of modern history and the field of literary studies and comparative literature as well. It's of interest to scholars of political history, of print culture, of translation history, and also of the history of modern China. This is really a book not just about translation, but about the emergence of and the formation of a modern intellectual in China through some of these practices. It's full of really, really interesting close readings of some of Lin Xu and his collaborators' translations, and it was a lot of fun to talk with him about it. So I hope you enjoy. We're here today to talk with Michael Gibbs-Hill about his new book, Lin Chu, Inc., Translation and the Making of Modern Chinese Culture. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Michael, and thank you so much for making the time to talk with me today. Hi, Carla. Thanks for having me on. So, Michael, could you start us off by saying a little bit about what brought you to this field? How did you wind up as a scholar of modern Chinese literature? Well, that's an interesting question. You know, at, at one point, I think I'd actually forgotten how all of this happened. Um, but as I, when I was in high school, I took German and took quite a bit of German language and kind of started that uh, in college. And in the time between high school and college, I made a visit to Germany, and this would have been not long after the Berlin Wall fell. Um, and we made a we made a visit to East Germany. I remember we went to the former Karl Marx Stadt, uh, which is now known as as Chemnitz. Uh, and it was at that time I really became interested in what at that time we were calling sort of so-called post-socialist societies. And when I was in college, I just I decided I wanted to try to uh, take a language that would that would be related to one of those parts of the world. And so it it, it boiled down to the choice between Chinese and Russian. 
and I almost took Russian, but it was sort of on a lark that I decided to try uh, Chinese, and it just so happened that I had a wonderful first teacher, uh, and and then once I started, I just was uh, ended up kind of shifting my entire area of uh, interest and emphasis toward working on Chinese language and literature. So the book that we're talking about today, and it's a book with a gorgeous cover, I'll mention for listeners who may not yet have had a chance to see it. The book looks at the way a man called Lin Chu became a central force in the literary culture of the late Qing and the early Republican periods. And so we're talking about roughly the period 1895 to roughly 1927, the late 1920s. And you also look at the relevance of changing modes of and attitudes toward translation in this context, among many other things. So how did you come to focus on Lin Shu in particular? Why him and why this figure? I think I, I really developed an interest in, in Lin Shu when I started uh, graduate school. I started in the, the PhD program of comparative literature at Rutgers. And uh, it's a very interdisciplinary program, and you take courses in all kinds of different departments. And and oddly enough, I think my, my interest in Lin Shu actually came from taking courses in Rutgers' English department uh, that were related to the Victorian period. Um, partly many of the novels that, that Lin Shu and his collaborators translated come from, from that period, you know, kind of famous novelists like uh, Dickens and H. Ryder Haggard and folks like that. And also, I, I think... At that time, I sort of saw how fun and interesting scholarship on the Victorian period was. I mean, the, the Victorian period is sort of, lots of it is really gloriously trashy, um, especially many of the kinds of popular novels. And, and I found, as I looked at the late Qing, we, the sort of late 19th, early 20th century, this period from, you know, the, the 1880s through, through uh, the, the 1910s, you have a lot of kind of similar phenomenon and lots of similar kinds of texts, really, uh, the late Qing period, I think, was for a long time kind of derided for um, being a period that didn't have very high-quality literary writing. Um, there are lots of unfinished novels, things that were published in journals that you'll see. You know, you maybe read seven or eight chapters, and and you know, it becomes very clear. Um, you know, after a certain amount of time, that the author just got bored and stopped writing the rest of the novel. So, so then it just sort of trails off. Uh, you also have a number of texts that are very um, kind of spurious. You have no idea who they can be attributed to or they're written anonymously. Uh, or in the case of translation, uh, you even have instances where uh, someone might say, translate a text from Japanese or English into Chinese and then and then pass it off as their own work or vice versa. Uh, someone might write an original work and then try to say that it's a translation itself. So it was this kind of messy period that I found was, was quite interesting to me. Uh, and I'd always really been interested in translation itself. So, so learning about a figure like Lin Shu, who is famously this this translator who knew no foreign languages, and yet, uh, without the benefit of knowing any foreign languages, managed to translate almost two hundred novels. This just seemed to be a, a topic that was that was too good to pass up. And uh, there had been a few pieces that had been written about him in English, but uh, it was it was one of these figures that everyone sort of knew about, but had not really received a kind of in-depth discussion, um, pretty much, I think, in, in any Western language. And it was sort of once I started working on that thread, then I knew I wanted to structure my dissertation project around, um, around, around Lin Shu and his collaborators. Great. And we'll talk much more about him and his background and sort of what exactly it meant and it looked like for him to translate in the context of not knowing any foreign languages um, in a moment. 
But you just mentioned that this actually began as dissertation work. So can you talk for us a little bit about how you went from the dissertation to the book? What was that transition like? Were there any major um, issues, major transformations, any surprises along the way? Um, anything about that process? I think uh, a couple of things happened. First of all, what happened is, is, is as I started working on this project, it was kind of interrupted. Um, I, I decided for a while that uh, I, I needed to take a break uh, from graduate school. And so so I finished the master's at Rutgers and actually ended up working at a large um, translation firm in New York City. Uh, uh-huh. It was a very, very odd transition or unexpected transition for myself, but I found myself working on a... You know, a building in, in Park Avenue in the Murray Hill district of Manhattan, uh, working as the sort of China hand for this very large translation company, and uh, it was it was my job to oversee all of the translation, or at least the work of freelancers that was going into and out of Chinese. Uh, and it was all kinds of topics, whether it was uh, things related to legal documents or financial documents or patents or things like that. And that actually really kind of gave me a completely different view of the process of translation itself. Uh, began to see it as a very different kind of professional and social practice. And so, so having that little sort of break and then going on to finish at Columbia, I think, sort of changed my entire view of how I wanted to approach the topic in the first place. Um, once, once I'd finished, I think... Probably the best piece of advice I got as I was working on turning the dissertation into a book was to just set it aside for a little while and to take some time to think and and maybe think about some other things that were important issues for me um, in the late 19th and early 20th century. So so I started working on a couple of small side projects. Um, when I was doing the tail end of my dissertation research, I, I became interested in uh, some of these kinds of forged translations that were published in the late 19th and early 20th century, and I, I just sort of kept a file on them, thinking that I wanted to work on them at some point. And, and, and after I arrived here in South Carolina, I took some of those out and, and started working on them again. And, and it was it was a project that was in the same period that I was interested in and, and covered similar issues, but it sort of got my head out of the, the dissertation. I think um, it's very difficult for many people when they, you know, often they'll rush to finish up. And uh, certainly I was not very happy with the final product. And then, you know, as soon as you move and you're sitting among moving boxes and want to return to the original project that you've been working on, it's a little bit difficult. So, so having some time to work on something else, I think would prove to be really helpful. Uh, once I did return to the project, I, I ended up spending some time thinking about um, how I wanted to relate or, or let me put it a different way, what kind of audience I wanted to speak to, right? Because um, in many of my conferences and, and other kinds of things as I was working on the project, I actually ended up hanging out with lots of historians uh, rather than people in Chinese literature because of the, the emphasis of the book on print culture. Uh, so I had to think a little bit about who, who was the audience. So folks in Chinese literature and history, uh, I also wanted to write it in a way that would be accessible to scholars who worked on English literature or American literature or comparative literature. So there's there's certain kinds of things that I think have to be done in the process of writing where you, you step back and say, okay, how do I explain this particular text to um, someone who is not a scholar of Chinese literature? Um, at the same time, you also have to do things for people who you think are your primary audience. So when I'm discussing, for example, Washington Irving, I felt like I had to step back and explain to readers, maybe do some very kind of basic uh, explanation to readers who might not be familiar with these texts. So there was trying to, to read and reread and, and rewrite 
uh, sections of the book from multiple perspectives. So, and then also, of course, to make it too too accessible to other audiences, say folks who work in translation studies and so forth. Um, and then beyond that, I think it's just it, particularly when you work on on a single figure or a single figure in his circle, right? So Lin Zhu and his collaborators, you always have to spend a lot of time thinking about how you balance out um, the narrative of uh, an individual or an individual and his his cohort or his cronies um, and the kinds of thematic issues that you want to treat. So that that also requires a lot of thinking and balancing back and forth between um, between those issues. And I have to say, I felt like I, I threw out quite a bit of the initial part of the dissertation, or at least the first half of it, as I was going through that. But it was overall... It wasn't too painful, but it, it definitely requires sort of, I think, stepping back and looking and uh, rereading the, the work in progress from a number of different perspectives. I think that's actually really good advice for anybody going from the dissertation to thinking about a book manuscript, right? Because you come out of the process often, many of us are just completely burnt out. You know, it's hard to have the kind of energy that it takes to, to read it with fresh eyes. And, and so I think that that really paid off in this case because reading the the book for the first time, this is um, particularly, I'm mentioning this for listeners who haven't seen the book yet. It, it came out very recently. In fact, my copy, even though I got it in 2012, says 2013 on it. So it was very, you know, looking into the future, um, wacky when I when I looked at that. But for listeners who may not yet um, have read it, it very much transcends either the field of modern Chinese literature or modern Chinese history. And it's completely transdisciplinary, at least from the perspective of a reader from history in that respect. So well done. Um, Thanks very much. Yeah, it's, I think it, it would also fit really well in syllabi for courses in both of those fields. Uh, the, the other part of this, too, I think that was uh, at least a kind of practical thing that, that I also received some advice on was just uh, as, as you move into sort of working on the first book is to really talk to people outside of uh, – your initial circle of, of the of the dissertation committee um, when you're when you're thinking about publishers and things like that um, because I, I think East Asian studies we have a relatively small number of, of real core publishers and yet it, it's it could be very helpful to to talk to folks who have recently published books out there to see what might be kind of new possible outlets uh, for your work that's that's also how it ended up in this uh, in this particular series and one of the great things also about the book and then and then I'll move us to <laughs> to Lin Chu's okay. content, is that um, there are Chinese characters in the book. All of the long quotations, or most of them have, um, as I remember, as I recall, have Chinese characters right in the text, and so that's really, really helpful, and not all presses do that. Uh, yes, that was that was very gracious of Oxford to uh, to be willing to do that. It meant some extra work in the, in the proof process, but uh, I really appreciate them doing that. So you've already talked a little bit about Lin Chu, um, this is somebody who's the focal figure in this study, but very explicitly, it's not called Lin Shu Translation and the Making of Modern Chinese Culture. It's called Lin Shu Inc., or Incorporated Translation and the Making of Modern Chinese Culture. You're very um, careful in the book, and this starts from the very beginning 
to mention that the kind of translation that Lin Shu did, especially given the fact that, as you've mentioned, he didn't know any foreign languages, he did by working with, I think you mentioned 20 assistants who were trained in various right. languages and developed what had been um, referred to as a factory of writing. So you treat him in the book not as an individual only, but really as a key member of a larger network of individuals. So I'd love to, um, if you could start off by talking a little bit about that approach. How did you decide to focus on that, and what particular kinds of challenges did that pose as you were deciding to, you know, how to treat Lin Chu as a figure um, in the course of the book? I think as I as I started um, working on the project, one of the one of the first things that I realized was that, uh, particularly in well, both in, in English language and Western language, and in and in Chinese language um, discussions of Lin Shu, uh, most of the it, it came down to a real question of materials and how we approach uh, the materials. Many in many many cases, we find that that someone like Lin Shu, usually if he's uh, treated as a literary figure, as a translator, um, as a kind of thinker, it's the materials that are used by scholars uh, often are extremely limited, and they usually boil down to the prefaces that he wrote to his translations, and uh, maybe some other sh- short kinds of critical essays that uh, he may have written in to address a number of different literary questions. But the vast body of his work um, was the translations themselves, and in many cases they're simply just uh, not really treated in a direct way. So the first question that I had is that, okay, so if we want to read the translations, how then do we deal with this problem of agency? And this is always a question in translation itself, right? Because translation is a kind of derivative form of writing. Um, You have both the writings of the the author, uh, himself or herself, and then the translator and what kind of interpolations that that they might make. And in the case of Lin Shu and his collaborators, you have at least two different translators, right? So you have this kind of a process of of, of, uh, what's called relay translation, where we have uh, the original text, and then it's being moved through uh, one of his collaborators and then to Lin Shu himself and and then into the into the translated text that he produced. So really I think one of the first questions that you have to deal with is how how do you read these translations? How do you explain um, say, for example, differences between the source and the translation. Um, how do, do you even want to address those kinds of questions? So um, it was in, in sort of approaching these materials that uh, that I began thinking about the uh, issue as, as a member of this kind of larger network. And also just simply from the facts of his biography as well. He was just sort of a very unlikely um, literary figure, someone who had been, yes, he had, he had passed some of the examinations, he had passed the provincial level examinations, but after that really had just been kind of a itinerant school teacher. And it wasn't until he was in his late thirties, early forties that he suddenly became this kind of overnight success. And that kind of phenomenon is something that can only be the result of a larger set of processes. So, so as I approached, um, Lee as a figure, those were some of the issues that, that were in the back of my mind. So for um, people who are interested in translation studies, and we'll also come to this a little bit um, later, and really I think throughout the conversation, because it's an issue throughout the book, but you um, just mentioned something that comes up as a recurring theme throughout the book, which is the importance of moving beyond paratexts and looking at translation. And this is something that um, comes up in the context of a discussion of what you call thinking beyond thought. Right. Thinking beyond sort of the, the problem of, or 
thinking through the problem of original sarder or susya, as we are trying to understand how to use translations as texts from the perspective of a historian or a literary scholar. Did you want to say anything more um, to that effect? Because that's that seems to be a really major call that you're making in the book to all of us who are thinking about and thinking with translation to not only read kind of more of a text, but to really read differently when we're taking into account translation in the context of the history of China and the history of literature in particular. Well, I think, yeah, thanks very much. That's a very good, uh, probably better than what I could do, I think, in terms of summarizing some of the initial arguments uh, that that I make in the introduction. I I think that whether we're we're talking about literary writing or quite a bit of the intellectual history of the late 19th and early 20th century, we do have to face this problem of translation and how we want to read those texts. And so so one of the things that I point out... um, in in the in the introduction in particular and that sort of keeps coming i try to try to bring this up again and again in the chapters is that it, we do have this kind of tendency in intellectual history and in literary history as well to really focus on those texts to which we can attribute a kind of original voice of an author so one example that I use is another very famous translator, uh, Yan Fu, who did know English uh, and knew it quite well and also translated into classical Chinese. And there are many cases where we see um, sort of intellectual histories that, that, that address his work work their way around the translations themselves. Uh, Yan Fu inserted many, many kinds of commentaries and prefaces and things like this, and so we find ourselves sort of reading those particular paratexts without actually getting into the body of the translations themselves. And and one of the points I try to make, particularly with dealing with Lin Shu, is that since methods of translations were so, so so disputed at that time, since there was not necessarily uh, a single standard for translation or a single kind of norm that uh, could be used as a yardstick against which to measure any number of, uh, not just the English translations, but the work of other writers, that the problem of authority in translation, of of the qualifications of the translator, those kinds of issues are themselves themes that appear in the text of the translations. So it's and and this is a way that the translations kind of express an agency that um, can give us a very different perspective on the literary and cultural history of the period. And speaking of the literary and or giving us a new perspective on the literary and cultural history of the period, one of the things that you're arguing in the book. And I think it's useful to get this out right now because it also comes up in different ways a little bit later. You're arguing that the work of Lin Shu, right? Lin, Lin Shu and his collaborators and his colleagues, it actually helps us understand the transformation of what you call mental labor and intellectual work in modern China. So there are, are pretty vast consequences for the study of what would seem to be, you know, a, an individual figure. Even though we've already talked about the fact that he's he's an individual that's actually a multiplicity. Right, um, but this idea of mental labor and the the use of this figure of Lin Chu and, and his collaborators to understand the transformation of this concept is what I'd like to ask you about. So, can you talk a little bit about this and the centrality of it, um, or the the role it played in your conceptualizing this work? Sure. I think it's well known that uh, the the work of translation itself becomes important to uh, 
what constitutes an intellectual in the late 19th and early 20th century China. So, so in my discussion of mental labor, I try to find a way to, to kind of take that apart a little bit more clearly. Uh, if, the, if the intellectual itself is, is not a natural category, uh, it's, it's not a kind of stable category we can refer to, then what I argue is that, that we need to look at the kind of what is, what is the constellation of activities that make up the work of the intellectual. And, and what we see in the late 19th, early 20th century is a growing importance of knowledge of foreign languages. And uh, this becomes, some, and of course, translation itself also become a very important part of the work of the intellectual um, sometimes in very practical ways. Uh, some scholars have shown, for example, that uh, translations for publications, the work of translation there, actually played a very important role in the way that uh, the entire royalty system for publications grew in the late 19th and early 20th century. Of course, it also becomes a very important mode of, of claiming authority. Um, the ability of writers to bring uh, new texts into the Chinese language provides not only, um, in some cases, a way for them to break into print for the first time. Uh, we look at figures like uh, Zhou Zoran, the brother of Lu Xun. Many of his early publications were all translations. It provides a kind of avenue for for, for younger intellectuals to uh, gain entry into um, intellectual discourse. It also uh, also for more important figures, it also becomes a way of, of claiming authority. And so this, this is uh, the kind of th- thread that I trace through, uh, through his career and then later also through Lin Xu's conflicts with um, figures who we now know as being members of the new culture and May 4th movement. Now, after the introduction where you're setting up a lot of these sort of central problems and, and major concepts that we're going to see later on in the book, after this, we, or you take us through, rather, a series of chapters where we see Lin Shu transforming. He transforms from a kind of activist and patriotic translator to um, what you describe as an arbiter between a classical Chinese language and literature and a national language, and we'll talk about that. He eventually becomes a kind of media star who stands for traditionalist cultural values, but brings them to leisure readers. And then ultimately, at the end of the book, we kind of, we see him in his downfall, um, pretty much, as a symbol of the the most reactionary strains of the Chinese cultural tradition. So let's get into how this happens and, and see at least part of this transformation as it's taking place. So as you get us started after the introduction, chapter two, gives us a framework to help understand Lin Chu's career with respect to two kinds of tools that you call broken tools. Um, and that in the nature of what makes them broken is actually kind of interesting. Um, but two tools that are going to play really important roles in uh, the backbone, or they form the backbone of his career through all of their stages in different ways. The first of these tools is his method of translation. He used a mode that you translate here as tandem translation. Is this what is this what you meant? Um, is this equivalent to relay translation, or is this something different? I think it, the, the terms um, tandem translation, I think, or Dui Yi, usually refers to two people sitting in the same room with one another. And I, I believe relay translation can actually be um, people working on different texts, but not necessarily in the same room. Uh, but but Dui Yi is or, or tandem translation is this process where where at least two people are sitting together. Uh, one person who has a knowledge of the foreign language who kind of does a 
oral rendition of the text, um, sentence by sentence. And then another person who, in this case, was Li Chu, uh, writes it down, at least a draft and then usually a final version of the text um, in, in written Chinese. And it's very common practice at that time because uh, we, we find, um, whether it's missionary organizations or many of these kinds of um, scientific institutions like the the, the school at the John Ann Arsenal and similar kinds of, of uh, institutions, you see that very few people actually had a strong enough command of both Chinese and a foreign language to render a text, or to render a translation all by themselves. It usually required uh, at least one other collaborator, if not more. One of the really interesting things that's happening in this chapter and in this section of the book is you're showing that this mode of producing text, so tandem translation or dui, is actually related to and is shaped by other modes of textuality that are happening sort of in the intellectual environment and in the background of the translators. And these include fiction commentary and sequel writing. And these um, this actually becomes really important later, so I wonder if you wouldn't mind talking about that um, relationship between these, excuse me, different modes of textuality for us. Sure. When you have this kind of divide between the person who possesses the the kind of technical knowledge of the foreign language and then the person who is is writing down the text, um, what, what I argue is that there's a certain kind of ethics or way of approaching the text um, that comes from late imperial Chinese fiction in particular that, that ends up being very important for Lin Shu. Uh, now for, for folks who are familiar with um, works like, you know, The Water Margin, uh, Shui Hu Zhuan, and Hong Lulong, the, 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 the story of the stone and texts like that. I mean, most of these come with very extensive kinds of commentaries. Um, there are many... St- there are also a number of sequels that are written to these texts where we, we see in traditional Chinese fiction that there's almost a... Um, an interest both in improving on the original, uh, in some cases, or on elaborating on themes that existed in the in the original work of fiction, and also in guiding readers and in showing them how to read a text properly. And um, one of the things I think we see, particularly in, in translations of, of works by Dickens, is is we see kind of some of the devices of late imperial Chinese fiction, the use of commentary commentators and and multiple narrators coming in to sort of show readers. Um, how they could read properly, and in fact, how they can become a kind of, of of modern reader. So that's that's one of the one of the backgrounds that comes into the way these texts are produced. Yeah, that's actually a fascinating part of the book for listeners. Um, this is at this focus on Dickens' work and the translations that uh, Lin Shu and his collaborators did of Dickens happens in chapter four. And there's this really wonderful description of their decisions to really produce a kind of reader that could engage um, with the kinds of, and we'll get to this, but the kinds of issues of social reform through reading that they wanted by manipulating uh, the for example, transforming what had been one translator into two different kinds of, or rather one narrator into two different kinds of narrators in the same text in the translation. So this, I mentioned this just to make clear that when we're talking about translation here, it's actually really exciting in a, in a way, right? Because we're not, you know, when most people think translation, um, most people are probably thinking of a you know, relatively straightforward rendering of one to another. It conjures images of fidelity and a co- you know, sameness and authenticity and yada, yada, yada. But what right. you're showing here is it really is a creative mode that offered 
lots of different possibilities and options for being a creative author as a translator than most people might be aware of when they're thinking about the context of the history of translation. Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And especially um, in this period, I think that the, the kind of the most shocking discovery we might make would be to see, uh, in some cases, to actually see a very straightforward um, translation that is, in fact, you know, very, very, very true to the original. I think that that's probably the exception uh, to the rule uh, in, in many cases. And that's sort of why, again, also, I think it's important to think about the role of close reading, which we think of as being a, a kind of central method of literary history, but how we employ that particular um, kind of analysis when we look at translations. But we can we can talk a little bit more about that as we get into some of the later chapters. Absolutely. And, and we're, we're about to get there. But the, I wanted to just mention before we get there that the other tool that you mentioned in this chapter, um, along with tandem translation, that becomes really important for defining Lin Xu and his career and his approach later on is his use of the classical language to translate 18th and 19th century European vernacular fiction. This becomes an issue later on. You mentioned that this, like, his use of ancient style prose actually lets him and his translation collaborators bring kinds of texts, marginal texts, objectionable texts, into the orbit of classical study in a way that wasn't possible before. And this has really interesting ramifications for him. So um, could you talk about that for a little bit? Sure. This is the other half of the of the chapter. Usually when kind of thinking about the history of, of Lin Chu and his collaborators, the questions people ask, well, first of all, how can he translate without knowing any foreign languages? And why on earth would someone want to translate it into classical Chinese? And so, so a lot of what this chapter tries to do is to kind of explain not only why these make sense, but what their, what their significance is. And um, certainly classical Chinese, I mean, given the kind of narratives of uh, the history of 20th century Chinese culture that have been so strong uh, really since the, the 1920s, classical Chinese is often seen as this kind of, um, hey, uh, uh, how do I want to say this? It, it is a mode of communication that just simply has to be taken apart for, for any number of reasons. Uh, classical Chinese is usually blamed for low rates of literacy, uh, the inability to translate technical knowledge uh, into Chinese. Um, really it's, it's many, many different kinds of, um, problems are laid at its door, whether it's, um, I'm trying to think. Well, it's, they're they're so numerous; it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to lay them all out at once. And certainly, it's a very important part of the new culture in May Fourth Movement is to um, set itself in opposition to classical Chinese. And so, what I try to argue um, in this part of the chapter is 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 just to show why um, there are certain possibilities for. Um, for Lin Chu and his collaborators that not only uh, made sense, but that also made it possible for them to become innovators in this period. So as we move from this to the set of really interesting close readings that make up the middle of the book, you also, and I'll just mention this for listeners, you're you're not just um, describing these tools, but you also later on in this chapter contextualize Lin Shu and his collaborators' use of these tools in the context of imperial and colonial history. And so there is material here of interest to um, historians of imperial and colonial global the, the, the imperial and colonial global right. world, or whatever you want to call it, um, that might not be obvious from the outset or from the um, from the title. And so imperial and colonial historians and literary scholars take note of chapter two especially. And also chapter three. So as we move into um, these next chapters, 
we start moving into focus studies of particular translations that Lin Chu and his collaborators did that both reflect, uh, sort of, that are cases in point for illustrating some of his major approaches, but that also take us through the really interesting stages of his rise and fall, so to speak, as an intellectual in this period. So the third chapter looks closely at two, or at close readings of two translations that she was involved in that both helped him and his collaborators, as you show here, establish lasting relevance for their work. And the title of the chapter, The Name is Changed, But the Tale is Told of You, is taken from a quotation by Marx and illustrates the centrality of labor, as we sort of mentioned earlier, that will continue to be really important to this story. So the first uh, translation that you focus on here is a rendering of Uncle Tom's Cabin by Lin Chu and his collaborators, Lin Chu and Wei Yi in particular. Now, for listeners, what's really interesting here is that the um, each one of these translations also comes with a new kind of title. So as we talk about these in the, for the rest of our conversation, I'll mention them initially um, as the kind of the source text, if you will, and I know how problematic that concept is, but source text um, that Lin Chu and his collaborators were working from, but then we'll move to the title that Lin and company actually gave the text. And here, Uncle Tom's Cabin became a record of the black slave's plea to heaven. Right. Okay. So this is fascinating. And in, in this text, they're engaging with a global literature on African slavery and sort of relating it to the issue of Chinese coolies and Chinese laborers. So can you, for listeners, talk about the nature of Lin and company's version of the text and how um, maybe some important ways that it actually differed from Harriet Beecher Stowe's version of the text? Sure. I think, I think the first thing um, is that... Uncle Tom's Cabin was one of the most widely translated novels uh, of of the 19th and, and 20th centuries. Um, we've seen many different versions of it uh, in, for example, in Spanish. I believe that the there's a book that's actually coming out just on uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin and and, and uh, Russian culture in the 19th and 20th centuries. So this is a very compelling work that has found audiences in um, places around the world in a number of different languages. It's really, I think, uh, if we look at the work of Franco Ready and the way that he traces um, the movement of different novels around the world uh, in the 19th and particularly in the 19th century, this has to be one of the, those most uh, important works. Um, so when Lin Chu was working on this text, he the first question is, of course, has how how did it come to him? And and the guess that I make uh, in the book is that it was probably used as a textbook um, at St. John's College, which is where uh, Wei Yi attended and 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 probably took a degree there. Um, given that the fact that the, 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 the school was run by missionaries, it's probably likely that if it wasn't used in the classroom, then he was introduced to it there. And one of the things I think that's interesting, well, two things I'll talk about. First of all, um, in Uncle Tom's Cabin, I think um, it, the most important one of the most important parts of the of the of of the Black Slaves' Plea to Heaven, which is the translation prepared by Lin Shu and Wei Yi, is that the character George Harris really becomes the hero. And George is 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 a character who is an escaped slave, and he first uh, flees to the north, and then to Canada, and then to France, and then again. And a lot of this we learn in the novel through him sort of sending letters back and forth to his family and so forth. And then eventually he 
goes, agrees um, to go with his family to Liberia to start uh, basically to, to return to Liberia. And what we see in this case is it's a really interesting example of the way that a certain problem in the novel, um, as it was originally written, becomes transformed and takes on an entirely different meaning in a new context. Um, Harriet Beecher Stowe was very severely criticized by critics at the time for sending George back to Liberia because it was believed uh, by some critics at the time that she was sponsoring or, or, or giving some sort of uh, credibility to the an organization called the American Colonization Society, which was calling for a return of all uh, slaves of African descent to the African continent, right? So, so it was an organization that was calling for the end of slavery, but was also uh, basically arguing against um, any kind of uh, any kind of diverse culture, um, North American culture, after the Civil War. But what we see in this case is that George becomes this uh, in, in the Black Slave Fleet to Heaven and Lead Shu and Wei Yi's version of the novel. He becomes a very heroic character, and at the end of the novel, he speaks in this language that um, diverts quite a bit from Harry Beecher Stowe's novel, and, and in fact uses the vocabulary of what at that time was known as, as so-called Western learning, or Xixue, uh, which partly relates to both scientific and technical knowledge translated from Western languages and from Japanese, and also kind of larger, more general um, social sciences, law, things like that. So, so there's this kind of long speech where George talks about founding a new nation according to these principles, many of which seem to have some kind of relation to, to Western learning. And so we see both two things happen here. First of all, we see the way this kind of problem that relates to the American Colonization Society is, is transformed and, and becomes a completely different and new thing in, in the novel as translated by Lin Shu and Wei Yi. We also see this kind of new ideal intellectual emerge in the novel, uh, where George, as translated uh, by Lin Shu and Wei Yi, speaks the language of the new intellectual. And so it's right at this at this conclusion we see that George is not only the real hero, but he he's come to represent who the translators see as a kind of idealized version um, of the new intellectual. So that's that's one way that we try to engage in close reading of these texts. And you make the point here also that George kind of typifies something really important that's happening in this in this translation, which is that Lynn and his colleagues are establishing ancient style prose as a basis for. A national language of critique, and this is a really important move, right? Right, right, right. And and uh, the, the kind of opening quote that I use for the chapter is something from Hu Shi, who was actually one of Lin Shu's great adversaries later in the in the teens and twenties, who who made this kind of offhand comment that said uh, Lin Shu opened a new colony for ancient style prose for Gu Wen, and, and and actually, what I end up kind of using that quote to say is that uh, it's it's in response to this issue of uh, colonialism and imperialism that Lin Shu begins to think of a new way to use classical Chinese and to use ancient style prose and to argue um, not only that classical Chinese can serve as a kind of medium for um, translating and transmitting uh, modern knowledge, but also it's a way of critiquing that knowledge and the kind of terms of commensurability that uh, exist between languages. Right. And the other major text that 
this chapter looks at is also really interesting, and it's interesting for different kinds of reasons, though. So Lin also works on a translation of Aesop's fables, and interestingly, he works on this with the eldest son and the nephew of Yan Fu, who you mentioned earlier, who is very famous in the history of um, translation in modern China. Now, this is actually marketed as a textbook, right? Right. And this is... This is um I have to say, as I was working on the entire, this was one of the first books I read when I started the project. I knew that I was kind of, I needed to move in a direction that focused more on print culture because this is, a, it's a really beautiful book. Uh, when we come, when we look at kind of other publications from uh, the first 10 years of the 20th century, I was just struck by the quality of the publication and it is marketed as a textbook. Okay. And it was also the first translation that Lin Shu prepared for the commercial press, uh, which is an organization in Chinese. It's known as the Shangong Yin Shu Wan, which went on to become one of the, well, it was the largest publisher in China uh, up until the Second World War. And of course, later incarnations, it still remains one of the most important publishers um, in the Chinese speaking world. And so a number of different things happen here. Um, first of all, we see Lin Shu's labor, his mental labor, his work as a translator being drawn into a publishing world that is very much centered around the production of so-called new style knowledge and textbooks. And the translation itself absolutely works to connect both the, um, the, the, the stories themselves of Aesop's fables and, of course, by association, the work of the translators to this kind of new style knowledge. So what I argue is that the book is it's basically a textbook for understanding uh, some of the key terms of Western learning. So there are different stories where I think there, there's one story where um, something about a, a, a bird builds her nest in a courthouse, but then finds that all of the eggs are eaten up. And then to which Lin Shu appends a commentary talking about uh, international law or this concept, Gong Fa, um, which was very important in contemporary discourse. Uh, there's another case of, um, I believe it's something about... Oh, okay. I was trying to add too many examples in my head at the same time. Um, there's another example of, of the wolf that eats the lamb. Right. And the lamb has somehow become separated from its flock. And uh, when it's separated from its flock, it's eaten up by the wolf. And it's this very kind of they have this little dialogue between them and the wolf just keeps coming up for excuses for eating the lamb. And then finally he just gobbles them up and leads his commentary. So it, it all centers around this key term of, of what's called the grouping or chin, uh, which can be translated variously as, as a group, uh, as a kind of term for a proto nation, as a term for ethnos, uh, has this kind of, it's a very multivalent term, but in this very simple story about animals, we end up having uh, Lin Shu work to to link the story to these kind of larger questions of uh, evolution, of race, of questions of likeness and difference between uh, groups of people, so on and so forth. And the book just really works throughout to to uh, sort of teach readers um, how to how to become not only how to master this language, but in some ways how to become modern readers themselves. And what a fantastic text to work on. I mean, if you're going to be doing a close reading of any kind of translation, this just, I mean, you also mention um, or you give us examples of images from the text here. Right. And so one of the really important things that comes up in the discussion of this for scholars of print culture and, and book history is that you're underscoring the importance of the material aspects of translation, right? The packaging, the design, the advertising as a way of sort of showing the ways uh, 
that publishers really shaped the labor of translators in a way. And, and but also it just it's so curiosity stimulating for a reader that this is this was a moment where I got to the page with the images from uh, different stories of Aesop's fables in translation, and I immediately wanted to go and sort of make a note to get the whole book and to read through it because it looked like so much fun. Yeah, it's a really fun text, and just to see the kind of really creative use of print technology um, that was employed to to produce the book uh, because it seems that they sort of cut and pasted uh, using lithographic technology from a number of different versions of Aesop's fables. Um, and I spent, you know, this was one of these kinds of wild goose chases where I spent a lot of time looking at miles of microfilm, trying to find the original images. It was, was to this day, I've never been able to find them. So if anyone out there has a little extra time and wants to try to help me track these down, I would definitely um, appreciate their help. Now we move from close readings of these to close readings of texts that we briefly mentioned before, and these are the texts of Charles Dickens. So you focus on two texts here, and I won't um, ask you to talk about both of them. They were both published in 1908. One is a version of Oliver Twist, um, rendered as A History of Thieves. Also, because I just love these titles, so I'm going to say all of them. They are fun. They are fun. <laughs> and, and here's where um, you're, the what's happening is this, the narrator is separated into two narrators, basically. Um, the I and the unofficial historian, and we briefly talked about that before. The other text is a version of The Old Curiosity Shop by Dickens that's called The Biography of Nell, a Filial Girl. Um, now, very briefly, because this is actually a really important moment where this translation, you argue, poses a conflict between modern ethics and moral behavior. Can you sort of just briefly um, introduce what's going on in this story and, and how it's important for uh, the, the context of translation as a mode of negotiating these two different realms for Lin Chu and his collaborators? Sure. I think um, in this, I think, was probably the most difficult section of the book for me to write, uh, because I, I think what I ended up really trying to make the argument is that this is a text that in some ways fails uh, in its attempt to negotiate some of these different issues. Uh, the, the translation itself is, is famous because it uses the word filial. It uses it makes a reference to filial piety, and it's often seen as a kind of real classic example of the way that Lin Shu attempted, uh, and again, this is all sort of in a very caricature view of, of his work, uh, of an attempt on his part to um, force uh, works like the novels of Dickens into a very traditionalist mode of um, understanding human ethics, right? So by simply by using the word filial, I mean, this is sort of almost a, a it's such a loaded term that that in itself is often kind of determined the entire ter- interpretation of the work. But what I found when I really read the, the work closely is that now in, in some key points in the book. And Nell is the kind of very tragic figure who is forced to flee to the countryside with her, her grandfather and ends up dying at the end. And it's all, you know, lots of tears are shed throughout the novel. And she ends up using this term, zio, freedom or liberty at several important points in the book. And it really seems to come out of nowhere. And so what I end up arguing is that, is that the book kind of stages this, um, a conflict between uh, filial loyalty and this this concept of zeal in the figure of Nell, and uh, drawing on on some close readings that have been done by other scholars, particularly um, uh, Theodore uh, Adorno, you know, the work of Adorno, who says that Nell is a kind of sacrificial figure. Um, I argue that this is kind of what happens in the text itself is that it's it's in this. Uh, 
this particular conflict and that she becomes a kind of uh, of sacrificial figure in which Lin Chu and, and Wei Yi themselves are not necessarily really, they're able to stage this antinomy or this kind of conflict between the two concepts, but not necessarily able to fully uh, resolve them in any way, just as the novel itself um, is not really able to produce a satisfying ending. I think that that's something that's important about uh, the old curiosity shop itself and Dickens' work is that this is um, one of the most open-ended of his works. And so the translation in its own way uh, reproduces this kind of very troubled, uh, unresolved open-endedness. Now, as we move into the later chapters of the book, we see a kind of transformation, not just in the nature of the story that you're telling, but also in the nature of Lin Chu himself. Right. So I... I'm sorry, did you want to... No, no, go ahead. Okay. So um, in the the next chapter, and I'm not going to ask you to talk too much about this, just purely for the purpose of time, um, just so that we can kind of get to the later transformations, but you give us a close reading of of translations of some of Washington Irving's work in the sketchbook, and the importance of the notion of nostalgia comes up. There's a really wonderful account of a translation of the basic, but um, what listeners or readers will be familiar with as the Rip Van Winkle story, which is really, really fun. And you're also showing here how we're basically seeing a rediscovery of traditionalism in Lin Chu through the process of translation. And he's using translation to formulate a position that's going to be really important in the last couple of chapters of the book and in in the last chapters of his life and ultimately um, with consequences that maybe aren't so fantastic for him. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and just very briefly, I think what's what's so interesting about these and why I chose these particular texts is because Washington Irving himself was was known as being a traditionalist writer uh, as one of the most he was he was one of the most important or he was one of the first um, successful American writers on both sides of the Atlantic and yet what many English critics saw in his writing was this kind of very precious or stylized uh, imitation or homage of, of English prose masters from the 18th century and in the process of translation Lin Shu was able to figure this out um, he's able to sense that there is a certain kind of nostalgia and antiquarianism in Irving's writing. And in that, he kind of discovers um, a kind of modern traditionalism that he, that he well, he quote-unquote discovers and also kind of creates a version of this modern traditionalism through um, the writings of Irving and through his kind of visits to many of these. He often combines some of Irving's essays and stories with uh, genres that we see in classical Chinese, particularly uh, the travel log or the yoqi. So you, it, it becomes a way for Li Zhu also to experiment with using different kinds of classical Chinese genres uh, and combining them in a very free way with the works of Irving. Now, as we move from this, um, there's a really nice, kind of seamless transition from this to what happens late, um, very late in Li Zhu's life. Chapter 6 shifts our attention away from what we have focused on before, which is Lin Xu as translator, and it looks at him as what you call a master of ancient style prose, or a gu wenjia. Right. He becomes a kind of celebrity. Um, And you talk about his success in this chapter, his name, his image, and the, the kind of cachet, I think as you call it, of tradition that accompanies them in terms of a commodity that becomes available to reading publics. So can you talk about that aspect of what's happening here, the kind of commodification of all of these different aspects of Lin? 
Sure. Um, so, so throughout, really beginning in 1903, I think it is, is when he first establishes his relationship with the Shaluhi Chuglan, with the commercial press, this major publishing house. And throughout this period, I mean, he's turning out 10, 15, 20 translations a year uh, with a variety of his, of his collaborators. That's where you get this sort of factory of words uh, that, that his contemporaries talked about. And it's after he moves to Beijing University, he's, he he's receives a position at Beijing University, and he's asked by the press to come up with a series of textbooks for uh, what is then at that time called the national language or Guowen. And we see a really interesting process here at work where, where Lin Shu, who before he came, became a translator was basically unknown, um, moves through his work as a translator to become an authority on so-called national culture or traditional culture. And so he edits this series of, of classical Chinese textbooks for the commercial press. And, um, uh, so we see these kinds of attempts, uh, the way that his, his work is further drawn into uh, the, the print industry and by the way that his, his authority of a trans, as a translator also generates authority as a, uh, as a kind of purveyor of, of traditionalist and classical uh, cultural values. At the same time, we see a kind of further process of commodification, right? So after 1911, he leaves Beijing University um, after a number of kind of conflicts with other characters who he would later get involved with uh, during the new culture movement. And so what had we have is first kind of classical Chinese textbooks, and then he opens up a correspondence school, I which was that. something that I was really surprised to find. And it's, it's in, in the... Uh, it's not very, it's certainly not very well known uh, chapter uh, of, of his career, but it's usually been dismissed as a sort of ripoff, right? As uh, many correspondence schools at the time had a very bad reputation of simply taking people's money. But what I found as I looked into the materials is that you, this is one of the few cases where we really see uh, audience members writing in and providing some idea of how they saw themselves relating to the work of this author. So, so. Just for folks who haven't read the book, um, I, I look at some of these examples of students who sent in what looked to be writing assignments. And the, the journal of the, uh, of the correspondence school and, and, and just the kind of magazine that came along with the correspondence school would then reprint these essays. And, you know, they go on and on and they praise Lin Shu. They praise him for being a kind of uh, star of the, of the literary world, someone who's really upholding uh, traditionalist values in, in the face of uh, what was really seen across the board as a kind of political and cultural decline uh, in, the, in the very messy political times after the 1911 revolution, uh, where this whole sort of cult of personality builds up around him. Um, in, in what I think are new and very interesting ways and, and what are very counterintuitive um, and when we look at the, the, the cultural history of the 20th century and we normally don't think of these kinds of things occurring with uh, classical Chinese literature. And so this provides us with a new kind of uh, perspective on how we see the transformation of, of these practices, especially as we move into the, into the Republican period. Right. And it's really interesting because one of the kind of things that's happening here is that you're showing that this image of a traditionalist national identity for, for Chinese or for China is actually made possible through and is embedded in very modern print technologies. Right. And it's also like kind of a, a part of this story that speaks, that's very timely right now because it speaks to a conversation that a lot of us are having about 
versions of correspondence courses, like massive open online courses and web courses and the kind of nature of pedagogical technologies and the way that's changing the educated self. That's absolutely true. And it's, 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 um, there's, there's one essay that's sent in by a student where he even kind of idealizes this community, community through correspondence school where he says, you know, we, we aren't in the same classroom together. Uh, we're separated by rivers and mountains and uses this kind of, uh, flowery language, but then says that it's through this particular new medium. Uh, and the correspondence school had really only, uh, as an organized form of education had only come to China around 19, 1908 or 1909. And so, you know, about five or six years later, they're working on this, this correspondence school run by Lin Shu and his collaborators. He sees it a kind of new way of forming a kind of ideal community that working together can uphold these, uh, what they see as a kind of threatened values of, uh, uh, of so-called traditional Chinese culture. And of course it even goes further. Um, as I show in the, in the next chapter, and it's also the cover of the book, we have Lin Shu starts doing endorsements, um, for products. And so we have his, his, uh, endorsement for a Canadian patent medicine, uh, called Dr. Williams pink pills for pale people. Um, which I think I had heard something about this before, but anyway, so he, so he does, you know, there's a whole, there's his photo, and then as well, he writes an endorsement in his own calligraphy, right? And he was also a sort of noted calligrapher and painter. And so you see writing this essay in his own calligraphy, uh, in classical Chinese, and kind of, I argue, it represents this kind of total commercialization of, of traditionalist values that, that becomes uh, associated with his personality. So as we come to the um, to the last uh, body chapter of the book, I can't let you go without bringing this to a close. And you know, we haven't brought him down yet. We've raised him right. up on this pedestal. He's now this media celebrity. So how does he come down off this pedestal? And the way he comes down off this pedestal is the focus of the last body chapter of the book, chapter seven. And this chapter focuses on a famous, or what I learned um, through this, through reading this, is a famous literary hoax. The case of Mr. Wang Jingxuan. So can you talk for our listeners about this case, sort of what did it have to do um, with translation and how did it ultimately result in the effective fall from grace of Lin Shu, our hero up to now? Yes. Well, the, the Wang Jingxuan hoax was orchestrated by um, at least two people who wrote for the journal New Youth, Xin uh, Qingnian, which we now know of as being, you know, sort of the, in, in, in standard histories, is seen as the most important uh, periodical of the new culture and, and May 4th movements. And, but when they first started, they weren't doing very well. And uh, we find it's possible that, that, that the journal itself might have even closed because of lack of interest. And it's, it's right around this time that uh, two figures who were associated with the new culture movement, Qian uh, Xuantong and Liu Banong, kind of stage this uh, hoax where they create a character named Wang Jingxuan who writes this very, very long, stuffy letter to the editor uh, condemning the entire journal and everything they've published. And um, doing so in very funny ways and upholding Lin Shu and Yan Fu as the, the, the only true sort of leading lights for creating a modern Chinese uh, literature. And the, the hoax itself is, is well known, but what I try to do is to argue that there are some very specific uh, 
parts of the text that actually speak to the the environment of the of the writers at the time. And and Wang Jingxuan himself actually, when he praises Lin Shu, he quotes advertisements from the commercial press. So he's sort of using this kind of advertising slogans in his praise for him. And then in the same issue, there's a long reply. It's actually longer than the original um, letter from the fictional Mr. Wang Jingxuan that goes and refutes all of his arguments point by point, and then just really savages uh, both Lin Shu and Yan Fu, condemning their work, and particularly singling out Lin Shu for being an excessively commercial writer. Uh, it even goes so far as to argue that his, his writings are, are fake antiques. And um, that's, uh, I think, is really very, very um, important way for the, the for Liu Bandong and Chen Xuantong and these other new culture writers to position themselves, because the, the fake antique, it's not only a fake. Um, well, it's not. It's not only a problem because it's a fake, but it's also the consumption of the fake antique is also a problem because it's quite possible as we go into, you know, there's lots of fake antiques. If you go to China now, right, you see these in the in the markets, and people will try to tell you something. Well, this is from the Zhou Dynasty or something like this, and but people might buy it knowing full well that it's a fake antique and still enjoy it. And really, the image of the fake antique is a critique of this entire circuit of production and consumption between Lin Shu, his publishers, and his collaborators. And after that, then, Lin Shu is, is gradually is drawn into a, a conflict in print with the New Culture and May Fourth writers. And, and there's lots of details that I won't go into here. But really, he ends up having, making the argument in terms uh, on terms where he just can't win. And uh, eventually really comes to be associated with uh, the warlord government um, and all kinds of accusations fly back and forth, whether or not he's trying to lead a purge at Beijing University and so forth. But he's really just sort of shamed um, into withdrawing from the literary scene. And that ultimately cements his reputation as, as an arch conservative, particularly because he, uh, uh, ends up being on the wrong side of this debate between New Culture and May Fourth intellectuals, who we now think of as being really the the, the touchstone in the center of uh, Chinese literary and cultural modernity. Well, thank you so much. So just to mention for listeners that there's also a conclusion that not only opens um, with an epigram, or an epigraph rather, which is a short passage written by Lin Xu from his deathbed on his son's palm, which just blew my mind. I mean, just the image of this, you know, this hero, he's fallen from grace, and the final epigraph is something he wrote from his deathbed on his son's palm. Blows my mind. That image is going to stay with me for a long time. And in this conclusion, um, you look at the the ways that these problems faced by Lin Xu and his collaborators actually reemerge at other key moments in modern Chinese political and literary history, and sort of the problems of the written style of translations and of the sort of different levels of translators' knowledge of foreign languages. So this story about the sort of the changing ways that translation and its modes and understandings of what that should and can look like, um, the ways that that's implicated in the history of modernity and of sort of changing notions of the nation and the self and um, in the context of global history actually continues through the conclusion and, and perhaps beyond. 
So thank you so much. Um, there's so much in the book, um, obviously, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, Michael. Is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention uh, for listeners and perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Off the top of my head, I think I would just say what what I found, first of all, is that it was just, it was a very fun book to write. And um, I I think, again, for folks who are working on their first project, I think it was an important piece of advice that I got was to simply like your topic and uh, to to sort of enjoy the material that you're working on. And and I I just, I found it to be extremely, uh, for the most part, a very fun fun project to work on. Of course, the process of writing any book is, uh, can can really be a struggle at times. Um, I think that, that what I'm interested in kind of continuing with in some ways is, is reading other translated or sort of other kinds of, um, other kinds of texts that, that continue to be at the margins of intellectual literary and cultural history from this period. And so, um, I, I hope that, uh, certainly the kind of close readings of the translations were, um, I'd be interested to see what readers have to say about that, uh, and what kind of feedback they have for me. So now that this book is out, congratulations oh, on uh, not only a great but a really beautiful book. What's next for you? What project is currently inspiring you at the moment? I have a couple of things I'm working on right now. Um, having worked as a translator in the past, I found myself being uh, drafted into it again uh, on occasion. And, and right now I'm working on a translation of the, the introduction to uh, The Rise of Modern Chinese Thought, uh, by, by Wang Hui, uh, which is going to be published uh, as a separate short, short book um, by Harvard University Press. And uh, hopefully I'm, I'm, I'm working on the pro- I'm have a draft of the translation completed, and hopefully we'll be able to send it off to the publisher and reviewers and all of that uh, by the middle of this year. Uh, I've also just kind of worked on some other things that um, were interesting me as as I worked on the project itself. So uh, I recently just did uh, an article on English language correspondence schools in uh, Republican China and their connection to the evolution of an idea of, of a national language, of a guoyu, um, in, in 1920s, in the 1910s and 1920s. And uh, I'm continuing to do, I'm continuing to do work uh, along those lines. Great. Well, thank you again so much for making the time. It really was a pleasure and best of luck with your next projects. Thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You've been listening to New Books in East Asian Studies. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you next time.